Samara Ibanez, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really excited about this today. So you're you're a a coach and a, a coach that helps people to to quit drinking or cut back on their drinking. And actually, you're a a certified C3 Foundation TSM coach or a coach in this for the Sinclair Method. Uh, Absolutely. As of yesterday, as of yesterday, I've been certified. I had a a long call with Claudia herself, and um, it was just wonderful. Uh, the talk that we were able to have. She is she is very very adamant about this method and she wants to coach people to become coaches actually to coach others. And that's how she gets the word out. One of the ways that she gets the word out about this method. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to be part of her team as of yesterday. (laughs) Um, Oh, oh, that's great. And just to catch up the listeners uh, who may not know much about the topic, uh, yeah. Claudia, Claudia Christian is a famous actor. She's been in tons of movies. I'm sure people have seen her and, and some of the things she's been in a lot of major movies. She was a star of a TV show for like four seasons in the 90s. And being a sci-fi show, she has a huge following of um, you know people that go to sci-fi conventions and follow those kind of things, uh, yeah. Babylon 5. And she discovered the Sinclair Method. I think after, you know later in life, I think in her 40s, she developed an alcohol problem and went to rehab and nothing was working and, and came across this, this little known program where rather than trying not to drink at all, like in going to AA and doing the 12 steps or taking medication and not drinking at all, the program is, is essentially uh, naltrexone, a medication naltrexone plus alcohol leads to a person uh, basically losing the habit to drink. And, uh, and then she found it works so well, like better than anything and then eventually started a foundation in, in support of it, uh, the, the C3 Foundation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she's been doing it for around 11, 12 years. She's been um, just trying to spread the word about this method. And what I want to just go over is the way I describe this method is that the Sinclair method, it's a medically managed way to unlearn alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction. And it's actually been around for 30 years, but, and, and it's scientifically proven to have a 78% success rate long-term, but it's still virtually unknown. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, um, one of my missions as someone, as a survivor of alcohol addiction for 27 years, and then now being a coach and helping people get off of alcohol is, um, that basically you can become a moderate drinker, you know, like, have you heard that with this method that you can, you can actually become a moderate drinker, a safe and go back to safe drinking levels. That idea about someone can return to safe drinking levels. That's, I I don't know that, would you say that, that someone can ever like go back to drinking without taking naltrexone or is it that for life? Cause the way I understand it, is it for life, a, a person who does the Sinclair method and takes naltrexone to, to cut back on drinking or stop drinking should always take naltrexone anytime in the future when they drink again. Oh yes, absolutely. I, I will never drink without my medication ever again in my life because it essentially I'm not, I'm not a, totally cured. I call it, I'm in remission. 
I'm in remission because if I do, if I were to start drinking again without the medication, I could basically relearn, my brain could relearn all of the wiring that it did for the 27 years that I was drinking. And then I'll go right back to where I was before. And that actually happened to me already in my journey. So I have experience with failure with TSM, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later, but Essentially, when I first started trying TSM, I was dabbling, I call it dabbling, and I didn't, I wasn't totally committed and I wasn't totally sure about the method. And so I was just messing around and I ended up failing at it the first time and going back to uncontrollable drinking and using. And so that was a big, huge wake up call so that the second time around when I actually really did purposeful, what I call purposeful TSM is, is that I was, I was able to do the program all the way to the, to the end. So there's this thing called extinction that we talk about as TSMers. And basically it's that you, you, you do the protocol, you take the medication and you drink you take the medication an hour before you drink, and then you do that for months, for several months, however long it takes for your brain to rewire and unlearn those, those neural pathways. Actually, what I, I describe it as they become country roads again. They, they were super highways, you know, with endorphins going through them every time that you drank. And then now they've reverted back to small country roads. And basically that's unlearning the behavior. And so you hit a point called extinction where you wake up one day and you just don't crave alcohol anymore. You don't think about it like you used to, you don't upset, you're not obsessing about it. You're not, I used to plan my life around every time, wherever alcohol was going to be, I had to plan my life around that. And you, you just stop doing that. Um, you stop looking at all the liquor stores when you're driving home. <laughs> like it's just a, a, a very huge switch. It's, it's almost like a turn, like your, your brain turned off that switch for alcohol and that's called extinction. And so it's a really important term because what, that's what you want to hit. You want to hit extinction. And then what some people do is some people are able to drink the rest of their lives after that, but, but they end up drinking moderately at safe levels. Um, and they use the medication, of course, the medication is always used. And then about 25% of TSMers they've discovered, they end up gradually just becoming abstinent and then and it's just such a natural process that it's, it's not so harsh, you know, like abstinence-based traditional abstinence-based recovery is very harsh because you just have to quit like cold Turkey. And then you have to stay sober. And then you have to white knuckle it because your your cravings, you're still having cravings for alcohol, but you know, you can't partake. And then that's what leads to relapse. They've, yeah. they've, dis they've discovered that 
the main reason for relapse is cravings. Yeah, yeah, they call it the alcohol deprivation syndrome. I think where it can, and it might not even hit right away. I guess the person can come out of rehab and feel like they're doing really well, that they've they've sobered up, they've gotten through the uh, the withdrawal syndrome, and then weeks or months later, it just suddenly hits them that they just suddenly start having extreme cravings and and just constantly obsessing over alcohol all the time. Yep. Yep. That's what happened to me. So I became a binge drinker because I was, I was in AA. I was trying to work the 12 steps. I did that for 15 years. I was trying to get rid of this problem, you know, in my life. And I would go abstinent for three months, four months, even longer than that up, up to a year. And then something would happen and my craving would just overpower myself and I would just cave to the craving. And then I would, I would, I would always say, Oh, I'll just have one glass of wine. (laughs) But with heavy drinkers, it's, it's really hard after that first sip, it's like all bets are off. You know, when you, when you take a naltrexone and then an hour later you have, say you have a glass of wine, uh, for a person that didn't take naltrexone and a person caught up in active addiction to alcohol, they would have a, a, a compulsion to keep drinking. And you, yes. know, you have one drink and then before you even think about it, it's not even really at that point an obsession. Before you know it, there's another glass in your hand, you're pouring another glass, then the bottle's gone, then you go into your second bottle. Um, do you find that when you take naltrexone or even when you first took naltrexone, did you feel that that compulsion to have the second drink uh, was lessened or not there at all? Right. So that's what, that's what it does. So what the naltrexone does is it sits, the medication sits on your, um, opioid receptors. So when you have that first sip of alcohol, you normally without the medication, you have a flood of endorphins that is produced from that activity that you've trained. Essentially you've trained your brain over the course of many drinking sessions to flood your brain with endorphins from this one thing. And so now you're not getting those endorphins. So the reinforcement is taken away. And the more you drink with the medication in your bloodstream and sitting on the receptors, the more you, you, it's a gradual process, but your brain starts to realize that this activity is not that enjoyable. (laughs) And, um, it's quite, it's quite amazing. I I'm, I've actually become, this is my mission is to spread the word about this method because it, it saved me. It saved my life and it gave me something to live for now, which is to spread this word about this message. Yeah. Yeah. The the way I think of extinction, you were talking about it, about, you know, that a person develops these super highways of, of addiction of that habit or thought of drinking I sometimes call it a malignant habit. It's almost like, almost like a cancer, but like not a physical cancer, but of, of the, you know, brain wiring or something. It's like a, this malignant habit, but then, you know, as you t- go towards extinction, little by little, you, you take an naltrexone, you have alcohol. And, um, you know, as you, I, I sometimes think of it like an eraser, like as if your brain is a piece of paper and you've drawn something on it and you're, every time you erase it, you can see it a little bit less. And, um, or maybe, yes. maybe you could even compare it to like tattoo removal. People have gone through laser tattoo removal. Yeah. Uh, you can't just go one time, you know, it fades a little bit the first time, then next time. And 
progressively keeps fading and may take a really long time to get to the point where you don't see it anymore. And, yeah, and it's always still there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great analogy. I, I love using analogies because it's so hard to understand really what's going on in the brain. Um, and that's, that's great. It, it actually, once you hit extinction, so it can take anywhere between three months and a year or sometimes longer for people to, to get this, to get this healing in the brain. And for me, it took five months. I mean, literally on the fifth month, I woke up one day and it was just like magic. I, I just did not crave it anymore. Now I continued to drink compliantly. Compliantly means taking the medication one hour before you drink. And I continued to do that after hitting extinction. And what I found, I discovered something really interesting. It made me, it just kind of cemented everything so that I, I'm abstinent now by choice. I just have no desire for alcohol. It doesn't do anything for me. I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't ever think about it. So why drink it? It's like a neither here nor there for me. So, so I continued to, to drink compliantly. And now I don't even need to take the medication because I don't drink. Oh, that's great. I I wanted to present you like some hypothetical cases of how things might go for a patient just in the beginning. Like, just for example, like say, say a person goes and tries it, you know, they say, I'm going to sit down and have my pill and have a drink. I don't really believe this is going to work. And they do it Mm -hmm. like, wow, that really worked. I really didn't enjoy that drink that much. And I didn't have another drink. And, and then, um, the doctor or the coach checks back with them a week later and they're like, how's it going? Did you try again? And like, well, I, I really don't feel like drinking. I did it once or two or three times and I don't want to drink anymore. You know, can I just stop? I mean, do I have to keep going? Uh, as a C3 foundation coach, what would you recommend for that patient at that point? Well, I mean, some people are fast responders and I've heard of that, that kind of thing happening for me when I always refer back to my own experience because that's, I'm a case study. So I, I help people learn through my journey. And for me, I needed to do it for several months because I noticed what I did early on was I, I logged my cravings and cravings are subjective and you have to be very, um, aware, like self-aware so that you can even know if you're having a craving or if you're drinking out out of habit, or if you're drinking from getting triggered by something. So I teach my student, not, not my students, my clients, um, how to decipher whether it's a habit, it's just an ingrained habit that why they're drinking every night, or if it's a trigger that caused it, or if it's a craving. And for me, it was cravings. So I chose over the course of several months to just be, be very purposeful at the TSM journey and to just drink. I tried if life would have it, I would try to drink every time I craved. And I noticed over the course of weeks and then months that my cravings were becoming less and less. And I was logging my cravings on a scale of one to 10 every time I drank. So I would, I would write it down and I I was noticing that they were going down. And then eventually that day came when no more cravings, magic. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, a great idea. And I think that's a, a good thing that a person would get from working with a coach is just 
reinforcing that idea that keeping a log and writing down things, you know, tracking cravings, tracking right. when when the person takes the medication, when they have a drink. Uh, I, I think that, that the more tracking, the better, you know, because that, that's the best way to see progress. It's kind of like working out. They say the people who are most successful in the gym are the ones that keep a regular log of everything they do. And, and I think it would work the same way with uh, TSM. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the first time around when I tried it um, on my own and I, I was just doing a lot of trial and error, it didn't it didn't work for me. I I ended up quitting too soon. And I think that's a big thing that happens um, with a lot of people is that they quit too soon. They quit before their brain has fully recovered from the addictive part, you know, and um and then they they end up still having some cravings there, and then they end up succumbing to the craving craving at some point and drinking without the medication. So that's something I wish to um, spread awareness on is is just doing it full out, doing it purposefully, you know, with all of those with all of those things involved, which are logging and journaling and and asking the, the right questions. Why am I drinking tonight? Why am I drinking? Is it a craving? Is it a trigger? Did my mother-in-law tell me something and it set me off to want to have a drink? Or is it just purely out of habit? Because every night at this time, I watch this show sitting on the couch and I have this glass of wine, Yeah, you know? So when you say that you, you quit too early, like, so you might have been like that patient who, who said, um, you know, I'm great. I did it a couple of times and, and I, I feel much better. Uh, so maybe in the case of that person, it might be good to, to encourage them to keep going, uh, maybe even on a regular schedule of continuing the process of, I mean, like just for example, I, I've instructed patients to do it as if it's a clinical procedure, you know, not to think of it like you're drinking recreationally, but you're you know, as if you're going in for a, um, you know, an actual uh, medical procedure or hmm. like you're taking medication, like you're going to sit down at a certain time, take your pill, have your alcoholic beverage ready one hour later. And, and also I, I've been recommending recently, cause I've heard this works well. I've been recommending, uh, drink something that you don't like drinking, you know, like yeah. if a person drinks weird, if they like beer, drink wine. If you like wine, maybe drink a beer. Um, you know, probably not something that's too too uh, strong, you know, like a, not something that has a lot of alcohol. Yeah. So too many shots of pure uh, liquor can overwhelm the medication. So that's something to keep, to, to think about when you're doing this program, it's that um, you can, you can have a drink, like a whiskey drink with, you know, something, but not like, not by itself is it's not recommended. As for me, I was drinking wine and beer mostly. So those are the safe ones because they don't, they won't overpower the medication. So that, that's just something to think about yeah, that, that when doing sense. this. That yeah. So, yeah. So and then I just really, you know, again, I just focused on the craving. So when I was doing purposeful TSM, I, I basically wanted to drink when I craved. If, if, if circumstances were good, I would drink whenever the day that I craved alcohol. And I, I noticed the cravings were there and 
you know, that was so big for me that I was able to stomp out those cravings in the end, you know. So it wasn't that you picked a, a certain day of the week or a certain number of days a week. Uh, you were just, you were basically responding directly to cravings. Like if you didn't have a craving, you might not drink that day. Yes. If you, had, if you had cravings every single day of a week, you might do the Sinclair method every day of the week. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I did. So there were some, some weeks that I craved a lot more. So I just drank, I tried to drink every time I craved. And of course I, I did it. Uh, there was a whole protocol because you can't take the medication on an empty stomach, which I learned the hard way. <laughs> and so you want to have a full stomach. So you have to, you know, eat a meal, take the medication and then drink an hour later. So you have to kind of plan it out a little bit. I mean, I definitely was planning out my drinking sessions, but I just wanted to do it when I, when I was craving. And then, um, I actually had days when I wasn't craving. And so on those days, I considered them alcohol free days and I did fun activities. So I, I basically started a new hobby, which was spin classes. And I incorporated that into my alcohol free days. And that gave me a whole flood of endorphins that were naturally derived from a fun, healthy activity. And that helps the process. That's one of the things that helps us get healed in the end is doing those activities on alcohol free days. Okay. And so that's, you would consider that actually a part of the Sinclair method of having an alcohol free day where you purposefully, you don't take the naltrexone at all because that would block endorphins from, from attaching to opioid receptors, but right. then you would purposefully go out and do something that would stimulate endorphin release, like something positive, like, an, like mainly exercise, I think would be one of the most positive things for most people. Yep. Yes. Um, that is definitely part of the method. You, you, you look forward to getting to those alcohol-free days so that you can start a new hobby, like something that you've thought about doing that, you know, or that something that you used to do, you could even do art, like painting or sculpture. I mean, anything, something that you have a passion to do that you haven't done. And for me, it was exercise. Um, for others, it could be going on a hike, going on a walk in nature, you know, something that's going to produce really good endorphins naturally. Yeah. Or even if, you know, if someone with children, maybe taking their child to Disney world or Disneyland or something like that, or, you know, something that the, you know, maybe that would be, would work, you know, just being able to see your child have, have a lot of enjoyment and having a, a you know, a fun day uh, together and that kind of thing. You know, yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. So, children and animals, great endorphin producing activity. <laughs> yeah. Take your child or your, or your pet to the park and, and run around and have fun and, you know, throw a ball around or whatever. I mean, there's, there's just so many great things a person could do on those, those alcohol free days when they don't take Notrex on. And so, uh, so you're saying actually the, the, um, uh, producing endorphins, you know, purposefully you're, you're kind of doing the opposite of on the alcohol days, you're leaving those receptors open and, and then encouraging your, your brain to respond to, to positive experiences. And you're kind of like replacing the, the bad habit with good habits. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's, essentially what you end up doing. I've, I've stayed completely committed to those spin classes that I started back then. And the reason is because 
when you do have those alcohol-free free days and those naltrexone free days, your brain gets almost, you could say like a healthy addiction to that, to that healthy activity because you're getting endorphins from it. So you're, you're very much replacing the bad habit of alcohol and it stays with you. You end up, it becomes part of your life that those fun activities. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, that's something that's like a neurochemistry thing. It's not just, um, you know, a person doing, you know, good things and bad things, you know, it's not just a behavioral thing or a psychology kind of a thing. It's you're actually uh, optimizing your brain chemistry by, you know, taking the medication with alcohol and then alcohol free days, specifically doing things to, to, to replace the bad with the good. I mean, 100%, it's, it actually... 100%. So basically you are targeting with the medication, you're targeting that one bad habit, the alcohol, and then you're leaving yourself open to experience a lot, all the other fun things in life, you know? And, and that, that makes sense as far as why, uh, Vivitrol might not be ideal for most people, you know, Vivitrol being the, the long acting month long uh, shot with naltrexone, where if a person gets a shot of Vivitrol, they have naltrexone in their system all the time for like a whole month. So you wouldn't be able to do that process of having alcohol free and naltrexone free days. Exactly. So that's where the, the Sinclair method, you know, comes in. That's the Sinclair method is targeted you know, it's targeted at those opioid opioid receptors when you're drinking only. So that's what makes the difference. I, I haven't, I'm not sure about how that has worked Vivitrol in other case studies. Um, but I could imagine that it would cause depression if you're not getting any endorphins for a whole month. It, I don't think, well, I, I, another person I had interviewed on the podcast, uh, Dr. Adam Bazaga, and we talked about long-term naltrexone, but mostly with respect to uh, opioid addiction. And his, uh, opinion, his opinion was that the, the brain's reward system is, is, is very robust and that a person can enjoy life with hmm. long-term, long-term blockage of the opioid receptors. In fact, for people who take, um, even people who take Suboxone or, or buprenorphine for opioid addiction, it basically does the same thing. It's very similar to naltrexone. Yeah. The difference is it, it blocks just like naltrexone, but at the same time, it activates the receptor slightly or, or partially. So, um, but you're still blocking the receptor long-term. Uh, so people can enjoy life. Although uh, it, it's interesting, the idea of, of kind of going completely the opposite direction of having days where you, you really do positive reinforcement, but without the medication. And that's something that someone who's on long-term, uh, daily naltrexone wouldn't have the opportunity to do because they wouldn't have that opportunity to not take it if they were on a long-term medication that's always in their system. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Um, that's interesting that you point that out, that they, that they can still have really positive times, even doing the Vivitrol. So, yeah. Yeah. I've had patients on, um, on Suboxone long-term where they, uh, the issue was, um, Oh, that's okay. Yeah, we have dogs all the time on the show. Uh, so uh, actually, in fact, our uh, head of our network, uh, I think she always ends every podcast episode with it, her dog barking. Um, so uh, I, can't, I can't control it. 
Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, the interesting thing about that, I've had patients on Suboxone long-term, which like I said, does the same kind of a thing. And, they, and sometimes they do notice that they don't get the same, like a runner's high type thing from exercise, but otherwise they're pretty much able to enjoy life for the most part. But, but I think this, you know, that's a good thing for people to keep in mind that uh, part of the Sinclair method and, and maybe to optimize it, it is to, to plan for alcohol-free and medication-free days and, and not just take the medication every single day. Although there may be people who are taking it every day is the right thing for them. In the beginning, I took it every day. I mean, because I was craving a lot, you know? So in the first couple months, I, I took it almost every day. I mean, maybe I had like one or two alcohol-free days a week at that point. And then I noticed oh, because I was journaling and I was logging everything, I noticed that I started having more and more alcohol-free days and it became more and more and more towards the end. I was, I was only drinking one day a week. <laughs> okay. And, and how long did that take before you really started notice that you weren't uh, drinking every day that it cut back to like maybe just two or three days a week or less? Two months, about two months. I was drinking consistently most days a week. And then it, you know, the second half of my recovery that I call it, or my TSM journey, um, it was significantly reduced to only a couple days a week of drinking. Okay. And you never went through alcohol withdrawal by doing it that way? No, but I was, I was a binge drinker. So binge drinkers tend to not get the shakes because we can go for a whole week or two weeks or even a month without drinking. And then all of a sudden we binge and then we binge for like two days straight. And then, and then we stop drinking again. And we, so it's a little bit different. So what I do with my clients is I, I find out a little bit of history on them and I find out if they're a daily habitual drinker and if they're a binge drinker, because the, the protocol is a little bit different for both the way that they even go about doing TSM is a little bit slightly different when you're a habitual daily drinker. And if you're a binge drinker, oh, oh, how would you do it differently? Like for, like for someone that's a daily drinker. So for someone that's a daily drinker, it's all about habits, changing your habits. And you really got to go about it. Um, thinking about your, about how to change their habits because their habits are so ingrained and they're, they're really getting all of their endorphins from the alcohol because they're drinking daily. So they're drinking every single night, let's say after work. So they're getting all of their endorphins from the alcohol and they don't have any other activity that they do in life that is giving them the natural endorphins because they're relying on their drinking. Right. So you have to break that habit and it's such a strong ingrained habit. So there's a lot of coaching that gets in, that is involved with it in, in habit breaking and, and forming new habits and getting to that alcohol free day. Their goal is to get to an alcohol free day. And then once they get to that alcohol free day, it may take a, a couple months, then planning an activity in advance that will that they can do to replace and then once they start getting those alcohol free days incorporating that activity and start a new hobby i with with daily 
habitual drinkers, I encourage them to start a new hobby. Um, remember an old hobby that they used to do, you know, get involved in some, some community, you know, you know, having a community around you. So you're not at home drinking by yourself. You're, you know, at home drinking, you know, that's really important. So, so yeah, yeah it's a little bit different. And that's something that that it, uh, the twelve step programs are good at, as far as building community and building networks of of new friends that are have the same um, goals. Although with uh, TSM, you wouldn't really a person wouldn't really fit in at Alcoholics Anonymous talking about how they're working towards extinction drinking on a regular basis. I know it wouldn't work. I've been I've thought so much on how to reach those people because. I was in AA for, for 15 years in and out of those meetings, getting the chips and then having to forego all the chips that I had gotten because I drank again and I relapsed. And I mean, it was just like a, a revolving door of, <laughs> of going back and forth in AA. And I, I don't know how to reach those people because it's, it's very dogmatic what it's become. It, it is really the gold standard for recovery in this country currently. And, but, but what I've seen in the research that I've seen, it doesn't have a very high success rate of long-term success. It's about five to 10%. Yeah. And, it's not very successful. Now, yeah. as far as like when someone starts, um, okay. So, so you had the, the daily drinker and the daily drinker starting out, you might recommend you're already drinking every day. Now you're going to take naltrexone an hour before with food, wait an hour, have a drink, try to, to maintain just the one drink, I guess, in some cases, a second drink. But uh, so that's the daily drinker. Now, um, the binge drinker, now say that you've spoke to someone who wants to get started. And they say, I just came off of a binge. And I feel really sick from it. I don't think I'm going to drink again for another couple of weeks, at, at least. Um, how would you approach that that case? Yeah. So that was me. That was totally my, my scenario. And the way I approached it was I just did a real natural thing. I just, if I came off a binge, I didn't drink until I craved. I just, I, I went by my cravings. And as soon as I started craving again, I would plan an extinction session, which is what I call it. And where I take the medication with food an hour before I drink. And I would just plan that extinction session for the next time I wanted to binge. And then I, I didn't limit my alcohol um, use during my extinction sessions. So with the medication, I did not limit, uh, I drank as much as I wanted until my heart was content. But what I noticed with the medication was that you don't drink as much as you used to. You don't, you just don't down those drinks because it's almost like your brain has an off switch and it, it, you take, you have like two or maybe three drinks and then your brain is like, okay, I'm satisfied. I don't need any more. And then it, it, the more extinction sessions that you do, the more your brain turns off that switch to want to drink more that night. So you end up stopping drinking. Like I remember pouring a glass of wine back into the bottle because I just had a couple sips 
and I didn't, my brain was, was fully satisfied. I was fully satisfied. I did not need any more than a couple sips of, of the wine. So yeah, Uh, it it gets to that level. It gets to that point where you don't even need to drink it. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's great. And so what, um, so now as far, have you, did you ever have to take like a second one? Cause I know some people do that where they'll take another naltrexone within the same 24 hour period. Yes. I, I did experience that on one occasion. I was out at a, at a boat party out in Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> you know, like it was a, it was a holiday. I think it was like Memorial day. And I was with all these friends and then everyone was, it was a drinking party. And, um, I was in the middle of my TSM journey. So I was still doing TSM very strongly. Um, I ended up redosing after six hours because we had started drinking early in the day and then it was towards the evening. And, you know, I wanted to be protected. It's all about staying protected. Be quiet. It's all about staying protected. And when you're drinking on the medication, you're, you're protected. You're protecting yourself. So yeah, I did redose. Yes. Now, now one other thing that happens, and I, I think th- this is what a doctor who um, prescribes naltrexone for the Sinclair method is afraid of happening, is that a patient takes some medication and they're all excited about getting started. They go home and they take it and they get really uh, sick from it. You know, they feel like either really nauseous or they get a headache or, um, you know, that makes, maybe makes them tired. You know, they get, they get side effects to the extent that they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I've encountered that a lot. And interestingly enough, I was one of those people that gets pretty bad side effects, but I didn't in the beginning, I didn't know how to mitigate those side effects. And I was just doing everything by trial and error. And I discovered that there is a very important protocol to do to mitigate those side effects. And reduce them and even remove them completely. And so the main three things are, um, eat it or take the medication on a, on a full stomach, not just a snack. You need to have a full stomach from a meal. And then, um, I implemented this where whenever I take the medication, I take it with non-drowsy Dramamine or any over-the-counter nausea medication. It does, it can create a little bit of nausea in the beginning initially while your body is adjusting to the medication between the first in the first within the first two weeks like seven to 14 days oh sorry about that oh it's no problem so so the uh so the reason for that because i saw that you had written that and you you had written a a document that helped people through side effects and and i saw non-drowsy dramamine so the purpose is that of that is to deal with nausea from the medication Yes. The purpose of that. And let's just say, I don't, I'm abstinent now by choice, but let's just say, you know, I'm, let's just say that some time comes around and I feel like having a glass of wine with my friends, I will eat a big meal. I will take the medication after the big meal. I will take the medication with non-drowsy Dramamine just because I haven't had the medication for several months now, because I've been abstinent and I don't want to, I don't want to experience those side effects. If, you know, if that were to happen, I don't want to experience those side effects. So I will do everything to protect myself and 
make it a, a an easier experience. And it, it really does mitigate the side effects when you do these things. If you take it on an empty stomach, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's something that does come up. Um, it's come up with uh, some patients that I've talked to where that exact situation where they say that if they take naltrexone on a regular basis, the side effects get better. But then if they take a break from it for a while, then go back to it, then, then they get side effects again. And in one case, this one patient said, I don't want to have to take this all the time, but I don't want to have to get used to the side effects all over again each time. Well, that's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me because, because I'm a binge drinker. I would go for a week without drinking sometimes naturally. And then I would have to get used to the side effects all over again. So I, I created that article to help people with that because I experienced it myself. And I figured out every single time I start the medication again, I, I cut it in half. I do the 25 milligrams because it's just, for me, I, I have a lot of side effects. So I want to mitigate as best possible. And so I cut it in half. I take it with the non-drowsy Dramamine. Um, I take it on a full stomach every single time. And, but, but, you know, now the reason why I say I, I, I practice purposeful TSM. One of the reasons behind that is that I got to a point in my life where I don't really need to take the medication because I don't drink you know, and that's, I, I wish that would be the, um, the goal for many people. Um, but if people want to continue to drink moderately and at safe levels, that's perfectly fine. They just will have to take the medication with it. And so that would mean mitigating side effects and doing, taking the, the medication a certain way so that they don't have a lot of side effects. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, taking half that, you know, in the, the usual dose, just for people listening for the, you know, who don't know about this, about TSM, uh, the usual dose of uh, naltrexone is 50 milligrams. It, I don't think they even come in any other dosage normally, the 50 milligram tablet. And, um, you know, so one way to, to get used to it, to avoid the side effects would be to take half of a tablet, you know, break it in half and take a 25 milligram. But would you recommend, um, or in your experience, would, did, did you take that with alcohol, the 25 milligram, because I've, I've heard that, that it's just not effective enough, or would you take it that way? Like a few days before you have a drink. So very interesting. And that's a great question. I, I did it both ways. Um, in the beginning, I did it where I took 25 milligrams several nights, um, during the week without alcohol. Um, just to kind of get my body adjusted to the medication until I took the full dose with alcohol. But actually the second time around when I did TSM and it actually worked for me, I wanted to speed up the process. It's very interesting. I wanted to speed up the process. So I wanted to have as many extinction sessions, extinction drinking sessions as I could quickly so that I could hurry up and get healed. Right. So I actually was taking the 25 milligrams with alcohol and I did for myself, I can't speak for other people, but for myself, I did notice it still worked. It still worked great. Like I, it was reducing my alcohol intake. It was healing the brain. It was doing everything it needed to do. And I, I gradually 
went up to the full dose. And then once my, my body was after about two weeks, my body was fully adjusted to the medication on the full dose. And I just kept going. I just kept going for a few months, you know, taking the, the full dose one hour before I drank. Yep. Okay. So yeah, so there's definitely different ways to do it depending on the person. Yeah. I think it depends a lot on the person, how they metabolize the medication. Some people metabolize it much quicker. Some, you know, some people have, some people don't even have any side effects. I've, I've seen people that don't get any side effects from the medication and they don't have to even take it with a full meal, but it is suggested even in the scientific research in the papers that I've read to always take it with, with food. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And yeah, we, we should say that, um, that, you know, we're focusing on side effects now, but most people don't have side effects. It's probably like 10% of the people that take it has, and 10% is significant. I mean, so that's like one out of 10 people, but then that's nine out of 10 that, that pretty much don't have any real issue with side effects. Yes, yes, exactly. So the side effects, uh, I just happened to be one of those people that was sensitive to it. Um, but I know a lot of other people from the groups that I I'm in that don't get side effects at all from the medication. So, yep. Yeah. So now they say it has a 78% success rate. And I think we all agree that they need to do more research and define that better. And it's, and it's not just for the Sinclair method. There's other, uh, medication assisted treatment programs where, uh, there may be a number, a percentage number of success. And those numbers are, are based on you know, maybe one research study, you know, like for example, Suboxone, they say has a 50% success rate, uh -huh. methadone 75%, you know, for opioid addiction. Uh, there's a doctor I interviewed that's doing studies for um, uh, meth and cocaine addiction, or mainly meth addiction in his studies. And they're, uh, I think he said they're defining like something like around an 80% success rate with, with a particular medication protocol. But, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into success or failure. In fact, with the Sinclair method, you know, I'm not sure in that study how they define success because in other, you know, other studies where they might define success or failure with alcohol or, or drugs, they, they look at urine tests and they look to see is, is the person drug-free and how long do they stay drug-free. But, you know, if you tell someone you can drink with the medication, uh, I mean, success is really going to be an individual thing, you know, more than it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to study, although it could be studied, you just have to look at it differently. But uh, is, is there anything that a, like a person might try this and, and that you could say like, oh, this isn't going to work for you. You're in that 22%. Or would you say that pretty much anybody, no matter how they start out, that, that they should just stick with it because there's ways to work around uh, issues that they might have early on? Yeah, uh, great question. There is, there's supposedly there's a 10% amount of people that have a different shaped um, opioid receptor and the medication does not attach to it. So that is something to look out for. If, if a person takes the medication and doesn't, doesn't re it, the medication just does not reduce their drinking. They just simply react the same exact way as they were without the medication drinking. Um, then that would be that 10% of people. Um, then there are other options and there are other, um, drugs that can like anti-craving drugs that I think can be tried out in that case. Um, but 
the 78% long-term success rate that comes from people that have done the, the TS like TSMers who have done it to completion to hit, they've hit extinction and then they have long-term success. So they, they just never became, they never became out of control drinkers again. They just stayed true to the program, I guess. And, mm. and then became moderate, safe drinkers in their life. So I think that's what that's talking about. I, I know that have you heard about the that 10 percent no yeah i wasn't aware of that and and i don't think i so far i haven't come across anyone that didn't respond at all i mean so far there's been issues of you know whether it's side effects or you know they they try another issue is that a person starts the medication on a day that they were drinking heavily and that seems to not be a good idea you know to to, where they're already drinking all day and then they take the naltrexone oh yeah yeah Uh, but, but yeah, it always seems like, you know, once they, we try different things, you know, we get to a point where it's working. Um, but I haven't come across yet a person who took it and had no response whatsoever to it. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't either. And most people that I talk to have at least some success from it. And the, the main thing that I've come across is that, um, you know, some people don't, maybe they don't completely they believe it's going to work. And so they quit before they've gotten their, their, you know, breakthrough in their brain or yeah. Like they just didn't give it enough time for it to work. Cause you gotta be, you gotta be patient with this process. It's, I mean, we, we, we've done a lot of drinking sessions to get our brains to the point of addiction. Right. So it takes a lot of extinction sessions, (laughs) to get our brain healed from that addictive, you know, that addictive brain that we had. Yeah. What, what would be some examples of like other anti-craving drugs that someone might like ask their doctor about if, if they, you know, if they happen to be in that minority, of, you know, that one 10% or whatever, where naltrexone might not be ideal for them. Oh my gosh. I can't think of the name right now. Um, you might know. Uh, well, there, well, there's, I know there's Campril or a camper. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the one. And that, that might even be is likely even safe to take the two of them together, you know, naltrexone and Camperol together. I, I've seen people ask about that and I, I've looked it up. I don't really see any necessarily any kind of contraindication for taking them together. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard they can be taken together. I don't know much about that medication at all. I got, there have been cases where that I had heard about that took it instead. And then Nalmaphene is, is available in the, in Europe. And it's the, the European version of our naltrexone. And that one, it gets um, digested in a different location. I think it's not liver. It, do you know much about that one? No, no, I mean, as far I thought it was just like a different drug that did the same thing. And I, I haven't prescribed it, although it, it is different. So it's possible. I actually, a, someone did reach out to me and didn't become a patient, but asked about it. And she said that um, Nalmaphene works better for her than naltrexone and had asked if, she, if I would prescribe it. And I told her, I, you know, it's not available in the U.S. And she told me that U.S. doctors can send prescriptions to certain European pharmacies and they'll honor those prescriptions. Uh, I, I don't know much about that. I haven't done that, but that's, oh, that's, a, that's amazing. Um, Nalmaphene is not processed in the liver. So if people have maybe high liver enzymes or 
you know, they're struggling with that, they, they you can get put them safely on namlafine and it, it does the same thing. So yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, and, and then there's a whole category of things, up and coming things that are not quite available yet, but the, the whole category of the, the psychedelic drugs and there's apparently even ones that don't have psychedelic effects but are derived. Like there's a uh, Ibogaine, which is a dangerous kind of a scary drug that they're using in, in some countries. And then there's a new one called 18MC, which they're studying, which is derived from Ibogaine, but, but apparently it doesn't cause like the uh, psychedelic effects, but it helps with, with treating things like addiction and maybe chronic pain and other kind of, kinds of related issues. That's just so wonderful to hear that our science is, is progressed so much that we can treat these addictions with medications and with these kind of psychedelics that this is, this is shows a lot of promise in this field. And, and I'm really excited for what's to come with all of this. Oh yeah, we've definitely. Got, we've gone a long way from believing once upon a time, believing that when you have a craving for alcohol, just wait five minutes and it'll go away. That that's what my, my people used to tell me back when I was in AA, my, uh, I can't think of the name, but my sponsor, my sponsor used to tell me just wait five minutes. It'll go, it'll go away. And I, I never understood why my craving wasn't going away. My craving was getting worse. It was progressing. It was, it was getting stronger every day that I abstained. And that's just the main focus for me for this method is that you don't have to live with white knuckling those cravings for the rest of your life. I've, I've been given this gift of total freedom, you know, from cravings, from triggers. And I want to be able to pass on this gift that I've been given. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, and it's great that you've, uh, you know, I think that's something we need because that's a, um, something missing as far as what, what you're doing, the a TSM coach, especially that you've become certified and you're working with the C3 foundation, which is the main organization uh, dealing with educating doctors and, and the public about the Sinclair method. But, you know, a lot of doctors, I think, may come on board early on where they're willing to at least prescribe the medication, but they just don't know enough about what to do beyond that. Right. And, and so you're definitely, you know, providing a service that, that is really needed, you know, that the patients can at least maybe hopefully get access to the medication. And then, you know, as we talked about, the program is very straightforward, but then once you get past that straightforward thing of naltrexone plus alcohol equals extinction, there's so many nuances and so many individual experiences that, you know, people really need to work with someone who has experience and knows, you know, what we can try next if some one thing doesn't work. And, you know, all these other things like, like logging and, um, you know, like you were saying, you know, uh, developing a hobby. I mean, there's just so much more to it beyond yeah. a simple statement of how it works. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and everything I learned through trial and error, but if I would have had somebody guiding me when I was doing it, then I could have achieved it in much less time, I think, because it, it really, ultimately only took five months for me to get healed from a 27 year long battle with alcohol. It took me five months and I'm not mm -hmm. saying that's the case for everyone. You know, everyone's different. Um, but even if it only takes a year, imagine getting rid of a 30 year long battle with alcoholism in one year. Yeah. You know? I'm, sure, I'm sure you wish you could go back in time 
27 years and back to your <laughs> earlier self and say, here's some naltrexone, here's what to do. I would have gone back to the days when I was relapsing, going to AA. I would have, I would have done it back then and been, been totally done with it. I would have had a whole 15 years of my life given back to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And people listening to this that are wondering if they should try it or not, you know, just imagine talking to your future self 20 years from now, um, wishing that you had tried this earlier and, and, and not suffered nearly as much. Uh, I mean, it's really something that people need to, to hear about that it's out there and, and that it does work. Absolutely. And I just want to close with one thing. I just wanted to say that something that I learned recently, the founder of AA, Bill Wilson, I'm not sure if you know about this, but according to the nurse's notes on his deathbed, he begged, well, he, he asked for whiskey and they said, no, then he begged for whiskey. They said, no. And then he demanded that they bring him some whiskey and both his wife and the nurses, you know, they, they denied him. And it's just, to me, that story is, it's so sad that someone had to white knuckle their cravings their whole life and not get the freedom that I have, the freedom of just not having any craving, not craving alcohol, not needing it, not thinking about it, just being completely free. Like what a difference this makes, you know, really healing the brain. From and, this yeah, and people, people should be aware that, that Bill Wilson, founder of AA, was, was not against medication-assisted treatment for addiction. No, uh, he wasn't. Yeah, there's, there's a story in that Dr. Bazaga told in his book about how he, um, Bill Wilson met with the founder of the Methanol Maintenance Program in New York and asked him if, if there's something similar that would work for alcoholism uh, that would help to relieve people's cravings so they could work on their recovery program. And, and apparently he was also interested in psychedelics as well. So uh, he was, you know, the founder of AA was definitely in favor of medication-assisted treatment of addiction. Um, yes, absolutely. I've, I've done a lot of studying on, on him and, and he actually was very much for, he, he didn't believe that there was just one answer for alcohol recovery. Um, but unfortunately, you know, he, in his lifetime, it, it really wasn't available yet. So. Yeah. So, um, some, uh, Samara Ibanez, thank you for joining me in the podcast today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark. I'm so happy you had me and let me know if you have any questions. I would love to answer them and thank you so much. So as far as where people can reach you, is the best place to, to go look, look you up on the C3 Foundation or do you have a direct website where people can look for you? Um, right now, I will be on the C3 Foundation webpage as of this week. So you can find me there. Um, and then the best place to find me is my Instagram. And I respond to anybody DMing me. And that is at the underscore Samara show. I can send it to you if you'd like. Oh, okay. Uh, at the underscore Samara show. Yeah. At the Samara show, but it's an underscore between the the and the Samara show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll definitely put up, put that on the, the show notes. And um, okay. Perfect. So yeah. Thank you again. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. Oh, you too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.